As they're leaving, I want to remind you this is the fourth and final week in our uh, series on generosity. And um, this morning, we're going to focus probably more on giving than we have in any of the other sermons because that's sort of how our generosity plays out so often uh, in our lives. And then next week, we're, uh, before we start our summer series, we're going to have a very, very special service, and I wanted to let you in on it because I, wanna ma- I want you to make sure that you're here uh, because it's a great opportunity, but we're, next Sunday we're going to have an ordination service. And Troy Hawks and Adam Knight, Troy is our, uh, heads our missions and outreach here, and Adam heads our middle school ministry. Uh, they're going to be ordained uh, next Sunday here in the service, um, set aside for uh, God's call on their life. We'll have an ordination service, and we're even going to begin the service by having the elders come forward and vote. And uh, for the state of Arizona, that's the legal requirement. The elders vote, and it goes on record. And we thought, what better way to do it than vote here? Um, I've already uh, met with the elders and made sure nobody goes rogue on me right in the middle of this thing, and just just to give me a hard time. But uh, but we're going to vote, and then we're going to have a service to commission them to ordain them uh, to their to what God's already done in their life. And so I want to invite you to be part of it. It's going to be a great uh, a great service. Uh, So this morning, we're finishing our series on generosity, and I want to give you a heads up. There are five principles of giving that we're going to talk about this morning. So I'm going to list them for you so you'll have an idea of where we're going. And the first one is examine your heart first, give second. Examine your heart first, give second. The second point that we're going to talk about, the second principle is give in love. The third principle is pursue secrecy in giving. The fourth principle is to be a thoughtful giver. And the fifth principle that we're going to talk about this morning is to be a generous uh, giver. Uh, So that's the direction that we're going to go. But before we start, let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to clear our hearts and minds, prepare us uh, to hear from his word. Lord, thank you for this time. We ask, Lord, now uh, as we continue our worship uh, through your word, We ask that you would bless us. We ask that you would use it. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would challenge us, comfort us, instruct us. Lord, that we would be open to whatever it is that you would do in our hearts and our minds today. And we thank you, Lord. We give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Philip Yancey, who's one of the foremost Christian writers of our time, wrote about his own attitude toward money. And and I thought it was similar to mine in some ways, so I thought it was worth us looking at. But he says this, Philip Yancey says this, Many Christians have one issue that haunts them and never falls silent. For some, it involves sexual identity. For others, it's permanent battle against doubt. The issue that haunts me is money. It hangs over me. It keeps me off balance, restful, restless, uncomfortable, nervous. I feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes I want to sell all that I own and join a Christian commune and live out my days in intentional poverty. At other times, I want to rid myself of guilt and enjoy the fruit of our nation's prosperity. I, I gave you this quote because I, I want you to see the next sentence or two. Here's what Yancey writes. Mostly, I wish that I did not have to think about money at all but I must somehow come to terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. 
And I read this because I think that this last statement typifies a lot of our, uh, as individuals, certainly mine, our spiritual uh, journeys. And, and, and I suspect maybe you would feel the same. Um, one of the th- things that it brought to mind was, you know, how often do we celebrate generosity? We, we, you know, we know the names of great Christian leaders and visionaries, and, and we know who great Christian authors are, and we celebrate their writing, and we celebrate their books, and, and, and so we have lots of famous Christians, lots of people that we know, but, but we don't celebrate generosity. And there are a couple of reasons why, and we're going to get to those, but one of the reasons that we typically don't celebrate generosity is because we don't know who they are, because they're, they're giving to the Lord, the real gift of generosity, the real act of generosity is always between that person and the Lord. Uh, so let's look at the first. Examine your heart first and give second. And the first verse that we're going to look at is Matthew 5.23. It says this, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there your brother, uh, remember that your brother has something against you. And then the next, ver- talks, uh, next verse talks about go to that brother and, and make that right. But what what Jesus is telling us is that if you, as you give your money, you examine your heart, you look at your heart, and you begin to say, is there something going on in my life? Is there a relationship that's out of whack? Is there something else that's, that's going on in my life that would keep me from freely giving what the Lord's uh, blessed me with back to him? And so we examine our hearts. Uh, here's Jesus saying that I want your, it to be about your heart first and then you're giving because it's not just about giving the money but it's an act of giving our money unto Christ it's an act of worship you know when we come to church on Sunday mornings we we sing our worship before the Lord uh, we continue to worship through the word but we also believe that giving is part of our worship experience I have friends that that don't take offerings anymore in church they, they have other ways of doing it but we feel like that that's part of how we worship that that's part of how we hold our hands open and say, Lord, everything belongs to you. And so we make that part of our worship because God's called us to examine our hearts. Uh, Last week, Troy read to us uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 7. Let me read it again. It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give Give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so when we examine our heart, what we want to, to look at is how, where, where is my heart? Am I giving cheerfully? Am I giving because of who God is in my life? Am I giving out of the abundance of, of joy, of peace, of all those things that God has promised me? If I'm reluctant to give or I feel different about giving, then it's an opportunity for us then to examine our hearts and say, Lord, what's going on in my heart? What's happening to me? The, the, second, the second principle is to give in love, and it goes right out of examine your heart first, give second, then we give in love. So 1 Corinthians 13.3 says this, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
That's a classic verse because in the first century when Paul is writing this, there were people that were having their bodies burned. There were people who were being crucified. There were people who were being persecuted and killed for their faith. And here's what Paul is saying. He says, all of those things can be happening to you, but if you, and you can be giving, but if you're not giving out of love, then there is no gain to it because love is the heart of, of what we're about. And the reason that we can say that is because we know the generosity of God. We know that God loved us first. So John 3:16 for God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only son that whoever believeth in him would not perish but have eternal life that God loved us that God's gift to us was out of his incredible love that everything springs out of God's love for us. And then we're reminded about Jesus, who though he was in the very essence of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, that, that the love of Jesus took him all the way to the cross. And so we have this experience of God's love for us, that he loved us so much he sent his son. And then Jesus, who was the very essence of God, he, his love drove him to the cross for us so that we might have life. And now he says, now that love becomes your love. I want you to live out of that love. You have been so greatly loved. Now go and love others. Live out of that love. So we give out of love for who God is. We, we give out of love because God has done everything for us and we are living a life in response to his love. So we examine our hearts first and give second and then we give in love. And the third thing is that we pursue secrecy in giving. So Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4, again, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you, have given to the, uh, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus is referring to something that was going on uh, during this time because the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and other you know, super religious people were, were really well known for two things. One is that they would go, um, they, they would go into the, to the sidewalk, they'd go to the corner, and they would stand there, and they would have ashes on them, and they would put oil on their hair, and they would just, and they would stand on the corners and pray as loud as they could. And they would be there and they would pray and they would be showing everyone how religious they were and how pious they were and what great prayers they were. And they were drawing all this attention and it was sort of a contest to, to see who could look the palest and who could look the worst and who could pray the loudest and who could attract the most attention. But they weren't really praying to honor God. They were praying uh, so that people would see them and see how religious they were and see how pious they were and think, oh man, I wish I was like that guy. I wish I was as religious as he is. And then, and then they go to the temple and there's a great story in Mark 12 where Jesus goes to the temple to the woman's court um, of the temple and he, the story says he goes to the side and he sits down and he just starts watching people you ever done that people watching Jesus did that he's he's at, he's at the temple he sits down and he starts watching these people and he calls his disciples come here you guys I want you to see this I want you to see something 
And the disciples come over and, and he says, look at what's going on right now. Well, these wealthy people were coming in and they were giving their offerings. And it says in, in Mark 12 that it was, they were putting their money in the offering box. The offering box was, is a unique structure. It's, it's, it is a box, but on the top of the box, there are these horns, so uh, like a trumpet horn. And there's a, there's a picture of an ancient one. And so you see those horns coming out that, that look like kind of a trumpet horn. Or a, uh, uh, And so what they would do is they would take their money and they would pour it down that funnel and then it would go into the offering box. Well, if you were really cagey and wanted everybody to see how religious you were, you would get all of your money in small denominations, small coins, right? And as small as you could so that, so that if you're going to give $25, you'd want it in as small change as you possibly could because then there's more of it. And then you would make a big show of how you were pouring your money uh, into that horn and it would feel like and sound like you were given a lot of money. So when Jesus says they're sounding the trumpets, they're making a lot of noise, he's talking about people who are bringing in these bags of money and pouring it as loudly as they can in there so that everybody will look at them and think, man, they're religious. Man, are they generous. Look at that. Look at how they're giving. Well, Jesus is sitting there watching this and then this widow comes up who is poor and she gives two, it's called the widow's mite. She gives two, basically two pennies and she puts it in there and it makes hardly any noise at all. And Jesus says, she gave the most. They just gave for show. She gave everything that she had. She gave all that she could possibly give. And when Jesus looked at it, he calls his disciples and says, I want you to learn from this. It's not about the show. It's not about how much of an impression that you make, but it's about who you are. It's about giving all that you have. It's about, it's about your heart. And so Jesus taught us to, to pursue secrecy. It's not about people knowing how much we give or knowing how generous it is, but it's again, it comes from examining our hearts first and giving second. And then it comes from giving out of love to honor Christ and to bless people that Jesus loves. And we do it for his sake, not for recognition, not for anything else. The, th the uh, next thing that we're taught, the next principle, is to be a thoughtful giver. Malachi 3.10 says this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Lord is saying you want your life to be blessed, then bring your treasures to the storehouse. Don't build bigger barns. Don't build bigger silos. Don't have more places to stash it but bring it to me and allow it to be used for the kingdom. Allow it to be used for God's sake. Allow it to be used for what he's doing. And so often in the church, it serves as a, that storehouse uh, that we might, you know, we'll bring the Nevins up and AT and Crystal and talk about fuel, the mission, and we can promise you, we can guarantee you that this is a lean, faithful ministry that every dollar that you give, God will use, he'll multiply, it'll be used well, and we'll vet those groups and we'll vet uh, opportunities and so that we can help maximize what, what, uh, what you're giving and how the church is spending its money so we can be thoughtful givers. First Chronicles 16, 29 says this, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, 
bring an offering and come before him, worship the Lord uh, in the splendor of holiness. And again, so what he's saying is that this is part of our worship to the Lord, that we come to him, we ascribe to him glory. We're saying, Lord, that this is out of who you are. This isn't out of duty. This isn't out of responsibility. This isn't out of coercion, but we give with cheerful hearts because you have given us so much. And this is part of how we worship you. This is part of how we give you praise. This is part of how we thank you. So we're thoughtful givers. Uh, Luke 12, 48 says this, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they have entrusted much, they will demand more. And he is just simply saying that we have been blessed. We have been given much. And God says, now I want you to bless others. Use what God has given you well. Um, he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided his best in his heart. Again, for God loves a cheerful giver, that we give with a plan, that we give with open hearts. And finally, 2 Corinthians 8, 11 says this, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us is that we finish well, that we, if we start something, that we make sure that we finish it. You know, you never retire from serving. You never retire from praying. You never retire from growing in Christ and we never retire from giving. We have phases in our lives where maybe we can be more generous than other times, but we never retire from worshiping. We never retire from giving back to the Lord that he's called us to finish what we start. So we give, uh, we give that way. Uh, so to sum that up, if you're going to be a basic follower of Christ, then you must be a basic giver. The scriptures tell us all the way from Genesis to Revelation that basic giving involves something according to the standard of a tithe or what the scripture calls your first fruits. And, and often they use the 10% as that, but it's what we give back to the Lord. What does it mean for me to be consistent, basic giver back to the Lord? So uh, for every one of us who's serious about being a follower of Christ, there's what I would call an economic component. And it's sort of an interesting um, idea. An economic component is important to us. I, I learned this phrase from an anthropologist who um, uh, wrote an article that I read. And this anthropologist had spent his career in the Arctic Circle studying the lives and habits of native North Americans who lived up there. And he was writing about uh, what he did. <laughs> and in the interview, uh, someone asked him, what's the first thing you do when you study a group of people in an Indian village? Listen to what he said. The first thing an anthropologist wants to know is what, is the, economic what the economic component is like among these people. What do these people consider to be wealth? You and I consider wealth, first of all, to be how many dollars I've invested in my bank account. We, we think about net worth. Other cultures may not use dollars or even currency, but they have other ways of measuring wealth. Then he said, the second question we want to know is how is that wealth created? What do they do to build that wealth? The third thing that we want to know is what do they do with that wealth and how do they share it beyond themselves? In other words, is there any concept of giving in this culture or is it all taking and holding? And finally, when this wealth is exchanged, 
What are the results? And so you have anthropologists looking at various cultures and trying to figure out uh, what those cultures are like and how they've been built on how they, what they consider wealth and how they consider using wealth and, and how they, what are the results uh, in their culture. And so if you think about that, that we all have an economic component. If you go into a marriage, and, and we do this all the time, we do premarital counseling, we always tell people there's really three things that you're gonna get hit with, the three hardest things things in your marriage, uh, and one of them is money, how you use money. Do you agree on how you use money? Do you, uh, do you have a plan for how you're going to use money? How do you think about money? And you need to be uh, together on this or you're going to have conflict, and lots of marriages are destroyed because people don't agree uh, about money. I'm not going to tell you the other two, but you can check with me later. <laughs> one of them's really obvious, though. All right. But there's an economic component. Now here's another really interesting part of it. Every friendship has an economic component. You know your closest friends by your ability to talk about money with them. Because none of us like to talk about money. And, and so if you, have a, you can tell how close you are to somebody by how willing you are to, to talk about money with them because even relationships, even friendships have an economic component to them. The church has one as well. The church has an economic component. And, and here at North, we have tried to create this culture of, of we want to give away 50% of what comes in, that that's our ultimate goal. We'd like to get to the place where 50% of the money that comes in gets used to serve widows and orphans, gets used to serve the needy and the broken and the poorest of the poor, plants churches, does you know missions, all of those things, outreach. Uh, but we want to have that as part of our economic component. Uh, another one that we have is that nobody in our staff knows how anybody gives because we just don't think it's necessary. We don't think we need to, and, and, uh, and we want people to be able to give in secrecy, so we don't know those things. That's just part of our economic component as a church. Uh, the other part of that for us is simply this, that, that we want God to use us. Part of our economic component uh, component is not just giving money, but it's how we serve in the community. It's how we give our time and our resources that way. Going to Sholo and working on a building, uh, doing a North Cares project, giving our time in other ways, participating in VBS, whatever it is, but we have those components uh, in our church as well. Now, it's safe to say that, that the church in America is not necessarily known for its generosity. Now, we might be known for other things, but it's not necessarily for our, our, our generosity. And what, what makes that difficult is that, that in the early church, for the first three centuries at least of the church, that the main thing that the church was known for, well, two things, the resurrection of Jesus, of course, and then it's generosity, that Christians were always giving, they were always generous. In the second century, uh, there was a man by the name of Dionysius who wrote about common life among the people in the Roman Empire, and he separated him from the people who followed Jesus uh, to the people who didn't follow Jesus. He called the people who didn't follow Jesus pagans. That's just a name that he used for people who weren't followers of Christ. And Dionysius says this, the pagans thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept at a distance even from their dearest friends. Uh, they cast the sufferers half dead into ditches and left them unburied. So what he's saying is that during that period of history, if you got sick, if there was a plague, if there was disease, that people were afraid of you, they were superstitious, and so they would throw their sick out into the street. They would leave them in a ditch. If some 
someone died, they would throw them out uh, the door, out of their house, because they were afraid of them. They were afraid of the disease. They were afraid of whatever it was. And that that was common among the pagans. That was common among those who didn't follow Jesus. But listen to this. This comes from Eusebius in the third century, another historian, Eusebius of Caesarea, Here's what he says, the Christians were the only people who amidst such terrible ills showed their fellow feeling and humanity by their actions. Day by day, some would busy themselves with attending the dead and burying them. Others gathered in one spot all who were afflicted by hunger throughout the whole city and gave bread to all. When this became known, the people, that is the pagan population, glorified the Christian God and convinced the very facts, and convinced by the very facts, confessed that Christians alone were truly pious and religious. So here's what's happening. If you looked at the world in the, in the first through third centuries and a plague, there was sickness, all of those things going on, that, that, that the normal activity, uh, the normal response would be to throw them out into the streets, to get them as far away from you as, can, not, as you can, not to be infected, not to be contaminated until the Christians showed up. And what they did is they would scoop up those sick people and they would care for them regardless of the risk to their own lives. That they would take those, those folks who had died and they would give them a burial and they would pray over them. And the story is that in Antioch, it's where Christians were called Christians, followers of Jesus were called Christians for the first time because there was a plague. And that very thing was happening. People were sick and dead, lying out in the streets. And the Christians would come through and they would pick them up and they would care for the sick. They would bury the dead. And that the, the people in the community, the people in the city were so overwhelmed by their what? Their generosity, their love that they called them Christ little ones, Christians, Christ ones. And that's where that name came from. Here's the killer, okay? This is seriously. It didn't come from great preaching. I'm a little offended by that. It came from generosity. It came from how generous they were, how much they gave that we're known as Christians today because of the generosity of followers of Jesus. Because they didn't consider their own health, they didn't consider their own position, they simply served in, in the name of Jesus and in the love of Jesus. And we never retire from being a Christian. We never retire from being a Christ follower. And we don't give because someone is coercing us to give, we give because we love Jesus, because of what Christ has done, because of his generosity toward us, because of the love that he has shown us. How else do we respond? It's all his anyway. It belongs to him. And he's called us to be generous. He's called us to be generous people. You know, one of the most famous stories in the New Testament is out of Luke 10. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. And the story of the Good Samaritan is all about generosity. It's all about compassion that drives us to generosity. Well, there are five components that we've talked about this morning. Let's just go through them one more time. Examine your heart first, give second. Give in love. Pursue secrecy in your giving. Be a thoughtful giver. Be a generous giver. 
give from the abundance that the Lord has given us. Now here's one last thing. It's a heavenly economic opportunity. You see, a lot of people get confused when they give and they think, okay, now the Bible says that if I give one dollar, Jesus will give me three. You know, he made statements like, I'll fill your storehouse, I'll, you know, press down, shaken together, running over, will I return to you? And so I give one, Jesus gives three, I give one, Jesus gives three, I give three, Jesus gives nine. We kind of do that. And, and so we think we have a transaction going with God. But that's not how it works. You see, here's what Jesus has promised us. He says, if you give, it's your giving your life, it's giving from your heart, it's being generous back to the Lord. Let me tell you what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna give you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. I'm gonna grow things in your life that money can't buy. I'm gonna give you relationships that go beyond anything that you imagine. I'm gonna give you strength that you've never known before. I'm gonna bless you in ways that you can't imagine. But it's not necessarily dollar for dollar or I give one, I give three. There, there are places that they'll tell you that and I just want you to understand that that's not true. That's not biblical, it's not true, it's not real. But the Lord has promised us blessings beyond our imagination. But it's a heavenly currency. It's how God blesses us. It's how he builds us up. It's how he rewards us. And then he has promised us the ultimate reward because he said, I go to a place I'm preparing a place for you that where I am, you may be also. He says the ultimate generosity that you get, that you're storing up, is that you spend eternity with me. And as we consider our lives, I couldn't give enough if I lived a thousand years to pay for that. I, I couldn't give enough. I couldn't, there aren't enough transactions in my life. But God in his great love says, Larry, open your life up to me. Open every part of your life, your heart, your soul, your giving, your time. Give it to me and see what I do with your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thanks for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word, for the, the gift that it is. And Lord, I pray that you would use this this morning, and if we need to be convicted, convict us. If we need to be comforted, Lord, comfort us. If we just simply need instruction, teach us, Lord. But Lord, don't let us please leave this morning the same as we were when we came in. Transform us by your word. Transform us through our worship. And Lord, we will be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.